Section 17 of The Romance of the Romanovs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A.J. Binney. The Romance of the Romanovs by Joseph Martin McCabe. Chapter 14. The Tragedy of Alexander II. It is said that in his last year Nicholas I observed that he would leave a terrible burden to his son. He left a very costly war which turned monthly against Russia. He left an empty treasury and a privy purse that was a million rubles in debt. He left a city and country that bitterly murmured against the rule which he had intended to make so benevolent. He left forty millions of his people in the condition of serfdom which the whole of the remaining civilized world had outgrown. He left a nation outpaced industrially and commercially by every other power, because he could not admit into it the science which made the other superior. As he brooded over his Bible at night, he saw no solution. He died in distress, and, as in the case of the death of nearly every Romanov, few mourned. His soil, Alexander II, who confidently took over the legacy, was much closer to Alexander I than to his father. He had the mediocre intellect of the dynasty after Peter I, but the sunny temperament of Catherine sobered. Unlike his father, who had listened only to the wrong teachers, Alexander II had been an exemplary pupil, and he had had good teachers. The new domestic atmosphere of the court is less interesting than the old, and we need not linger over it. The picture of Nicholas reading the Bible every night to his wife will suffice. The Tsarina was a model German Hausfrau, on an imperial scale. Alexander breathed his atmosphere easily. He was an exemplary youth. On the night after the death of his father, he took the Bible to his mother's room and read to her. His chief tutor had learned teaching from Pestalozzi, and his lessons, which we have in part, were worthy of Marcus Aurelius. They were exalted in principle, if vague in application. Alexander was to make duty his star, his duty to his people and to civilization. He had travelled all over the empire, even in Siberia, and the sight of the exiles had so touched his warm heart that he had persuaded his stern father to modify the treatment even of some of the conspirators at his accession. What would a young monarch, Alexander was thirty-seven years old, of this type make of the formidable problem which his father had created? We are quite prepared to hear that he is going to disarm rebellion and win his subjects by kindness. He will make the autocracy so beneficent that men will love it. A comparatively simple thing, the young man thought. But the tragedy of the life of Alexander II is that it was during his reign that nihilism arose, dagger in hand, and he himself fell by the bomb of an assassin who represented the people. Russian funds rose in the European market when Alexander II mounted the throne. He was well known, an amiable, kindly man, gently punctilious about etiquette, very sober in meat and drink, very cold to flatterers. Europe looked to him for peace. His people, who sank under their burdens, looked to him for relief. Liberals looked, not too confidently, to him for justice. But Alexander felt that his first duty was to bring the war not merely to an end, but a successful end. He would not be crowned until that was attained. A few weeks after the death of his father, he sent a representative to Vienna to take part in a peace conference. When France demanded that the Black Sea should be neutralised, and the naval strength of Russia limited by agreement, he refused, and he bade the war go on. It went on, as is known, until Sevastopol fell. 
and Russia soothed her feelings a little by taking cars. Then the diplomats gathered round a table to see what difference to the world the death of hundreds of thousands of men and the squandering of three nations' resources must make. There was in Russia no chance of disguising the defeat. The Black Sea was neutralised. All the ships and forts on which so much had been spent must go. Cars must be surrendered. The mouth of the Danube must be yielded. The protectorate of the Christian subjects of the Sultan must be abandoned. One war had put Turkey at the feet of Russia. Another war had put Turkey upon its own feet once more, and had set back Russia. It was, however, peace, and the country looked eagerly for the domestic program of the young Tsar. He was crowned in August 1856, and he at once disclosed his policy. He would, of course, maintain the work of his revered father, but it soon fell to pieces. An amnesty was granted, and the rebels came back to the sunlight. The military colonies of Arakchiv were finally abandoned. Arrears of taxes to the extent of 24 million rubles were remitted to the impoverished people. The censorship was suspended, and St. Petersburg poured into liberalism like a stream when the dam is broken. The manuscripts that had passed stealthily from hand to hand and had been read behind locked doors were now sent to the press. Periodicals and pamphlets snowed upon the metropolis. Unions and leagues for everything new and beneficent and western sprang up like mushrooms. All the talk of English radicalism filled the salons. Self-government and emancipation of women. Biblical criticism and Darwinism. Banks and railways and manufactures. Education and cooperation and political reform. Presently, the discussion would strike a deeper note. A certain Robert Owen of England had advocated a scheme which he called socialism. Certain Germans were beginning to take the germ of Owen's patriarchal theory and make a scientific system of it. Russia was now free to travel and to import books. The mind which has been artificially repressed will, if the process be not continued too long, expand more rapidly than the mind which has suffered to grow normally. In all this babble of humanitarian tongues, each reformer stridently denouncing his brother as a charlatan, as is the way of reformers, there was one steady and persistent note. Serfdom must be abolished. Here, the mass of the people agreed with the intellectuals. We are tempted to picture the great body of the Russian people as too stunted in mind, too dazed by labour and the stupefying conditions of their life to understand anything of this reform language. But there is plenty of evidence that they were quite alive to the idea of emancipation. They had looked to each new Tsar as he eloquently unfolded his lofty aims on Coronation Day to abolish serfdom. They looked with particular eagerness to Alexander. Constitution was too large a word for them, but they knew what it meant to be free, and to have their mere and their bit of land. Forty-two and a half million people in Russia were still serfs in the year 1856, nine centuries after the establishment of the Russian church, two hundred years after the beginning of the rule of the Romanovs. I have, incidentally, given sufficient evidence in earlier chapters that this serfdom differed little from slavery. The peasant was, in polite phraseology, attached to the glebe. When a rich man ruined himself in the dissipations of St. Petersburg and sold his estates, he sold the peasants with the land. When a man opened new estates, he bought peasants to work it. They had no liberty of movement, which is the fundamental condition of liberty. They owned no land, except a small number who secured the advantages offered by the last two Tsars, and were therefore not masters of their own labour. 
half their labour must be given gratuitously to their lord. This was the new, decent sort of serfdom, who would then allow them to wring a miserable living for themselves and family out of a fraction of his land with the other half of their time. Not much earlier we saw great landowners, even women, could inflict on them such torture and death as few Romans are said to have inflicted on their slaves in the worst days of the empire. They were still slaves, though humanely treated in the crown lands, much as a wise farmer gives good conditions to his cattle. The lot of the peasant of Russia today is hard enough. Imagine it sixty years ago with the added yoke of serfdom. Assuredly, serfdom was the first and most monstrous evil to be removed, and we saw that for fifty years or more the rulers of Russia had been ashamed of this great stigma on their civilization. At the very beginning of the reign, the rumour went out that Alexander would free the serfs, and their wealthy owners were anxious. Alexander reassured them to some extent. He would like to see an end of serfdom, but it was an evil to be remedied gradually. He would like to see individuals reduce it by freeing their serfs. Soon after the close of the war, the Tsar again addressed the nobles, and begged them to give serious attention to the emancipation of the serfs. It was plain that little would be done in this fashion, and a few months later he appointed provincial committees of landowners to give practical consideration to the problem. Historians seem to differ in discussing whether Alexander was moved by his own idealism or by the pressure of the growing liberalism of St. Petersburg and the clamours of the peasants. The point is of some interest in forming a general estimate of the Tsar Emancipator. Professor Kornilov, while ascribing great reforms to Alexander II, maintains that he was impelled from without rather than within. That his moralising tutor had not been a liberal or a man of definite social views, and had implanted in his mind only such general regard for humanity and justice as a conservative may profess. Others would represent the Tsar as a practical reformer of a liberal type, a little soured in the end by the excesses and violence of advanced people. Perhaps we are nearest to the truth if we picture Alexander II as a man who united a real detestation of serfdom with a sincere regard for justice in the abstract yet would never have overcome the conservatism of many of his advisers and the immense practical difficulties, but for the very effective pressure put upon him by the rising impatience of educated Russians. Cathedral erected in Petrograd, in memory of Alexander II. The provincial committees wasted many months in futile discussion and wrangling. Around them now waged a great battle of amateur sociologists, and half a dozen different theories of emancipation had their schools of defenders. There was, to begin with, a vital difference of views between the serfs and their owners. The peasant wanted land even more than liberty. The owner felt that it was emancipation to give liberty, and he was, as a rule, unwilling to part with land. There was the question of compensation, which inspired endless discussion. A serf was worth a hundred dollars. In short, the committees of local owners did not want the work to proceed and Alexander formed, at the beginning of 1857, a central committee of 12 members under his own presidency. The work was to be done from on high. Emancipation was to be a voluntary gift from the Tsar. The work still dragged. In 1855, Alexander had appointed the liberal Lanskoy Minister of the Interior, and he zealously promoted the scheme and secured the liberal Milyutin as colleague, but other ministers were of the old school and unsympathetic. They pointed out that behind the demand for emancipation, 
other and more disturbing demands were becoming articulate. Liberal nobles, who were ready to emancipate their serfs already, claimed that this ought to be followed by their own political emancipation. They demanded a Duma. However, even members of the imperial family, like the Grand Duke Constantine, pressed for the reform, and the Tsar at length formed an imperial commission, on which the conservative opposition was checked. A law was drafted, and on February 19th, 1861, Alexander announced to Russia and the world, with a very natural exultation, that the serfs were to be freed. The serfs fell into three classes. Those on the crown lands were, as we saw, already in an improved condition. The law of 1861 did not affect them, but they were later, 1866, put in the same position as the emancipated serfs. Then there were a million and a half serfs who were not on the land, but in personal service. These were ordered to continue their service for two further years, and they would then be free. The main body were the 21 million serfs on the estates of private owners. Each was now to own his house and the small strip of land encircling it, and the entire community of peasants in a village were to have, in common, a part of the arable land of the owner. The Slavophiles had secured this reversion to the primitive custom of owning in common, and one may justly suspect that they felt that the arrangement would make the peasants more or less impervious to the new ideas about property which were being imported from Germany. The mere was re-established, but the landowners were to sell, not give, their land, and they were to be compensated for the loss of serf labour. The entire valley was estimated, the state paid it, and the peasants were to refund the sum within a space of 49 years. The mir was responsible for the payments. Alexander looked out upon his empire for the signs of jubilation, and at first he saw many. Even so drastic a rebel as Hertzen rejoiced. The journals and pamphlets of the metropolis turned from acidity to a temporary sweetness. Deputations of peasants, carefully chosen, were brought to thank the Tsar, and in the tearful accents of the aged serfs, he thought that he heard the voice of twenty millions. But it was not long before the reaction began, and a chill affected the liberalism of the Tsar. It was a very general belief of the peasants that the land belonged by ancient right to them, and it had been in some way stolen from them by the wealthy and noble. When, therefore, they heard of the scheme of compensation, the payments which must be made annually until the death of the youngest of them, they began to murmur. The officials, they said in many places, must have falsified the words of the Tsar. There were other grievances. The allowance of land each had, in the heat of discussion, been cut down to very small proportions. The owners were not bound to sell even this, and in many places they refused, and, where they sold, they generally attempted to sell inferior land. Officials, charged with the administration of the law, took bribes, and there was a vast amount of foul play. In fine, the emancipated serfs now found that a free man had to shoulder a burden of taxes heavier than they had imagined. In short, hopes had been improperly inflated, and the disillusion was exasperating. Nor was there now any lack of men imbued with the new ideas who fostered the discontent. Lanskoy and Milyutin were dismissed from office through the intrigue of the conservatives, and the new minister, Valuyev, had not the same scrupulous regard for the success of the law. In various places there were risings of the peasants, and the troops had to use their muskets. In the government of Kazan, 10,000 peasants revolted under the lead of Anton Petrov, 
and the new era was stained heavily with blood. Petrov was executed. Eighty of the emancipated serfs were shot with arms in their hands. At the University of Kazan, the students boldly held a requiem service in honour of the dead, and Alexander had to punish even the monks who celebrated it. The Tsar Emancipator did not long enjoy his popularity. The clouds closed slowly, after the short burst of sunshine, and would cover the skies of Russia, henceforward until the last Romanov quitted the throne. An even graver cause of distrust now arose. Alexander had visited Poland soon after his accession, and had paternally promised to make the Poles happy, if they were good. No more dreams, he said genially to them. His father's work was to be maintained, he told them. Poland was to be a province of Russia. He appointed a moderate governor, Prince Gorkachev, and declared an amnesty. Since the terrible repression of the rebellion by Nicholas I, a large number of Poles had lived in the various capitals of Europe, and there they had been thoroughly educated in modern ideas. In London, particularly, they had been steeped in the sober radicalism that had followed the failure of the Chartist movement, the fervour for the deliverance of Hungarians and Italians, the popular indignation against Russia. Most of them would not return to a Poland which was not free, but some did, and they assisted in the education of the Poles. There arose a very general cry among the educated Poles for a constitution, and Alexander believed no more than his fathers, or than Pius IX, in giving a constitution that was asked as a right. In November 1860, a great demonstration was held in memory of the Revolution of 1830, and the authorities were annoyed. Demonstrations increased for all kinds of undesirable objects, and the troops at Warsaw fired and killed five Poles. A vast crowd of 100,000 attended the funeral. The Tsar tried to conciliate them by small gifts. He appointed a Polish director of public instruction and cults. He created municipal councils for the large towns, and electoral councils for each government and district. But he would not grant a constitution, and the agitation increased. A great crowd went to the Viceroy's palace to formulate their demands, and soon 200 of them lay dead upon the pavement. The whole city went into mourning. A new viceroy, General Lambert, was appointed, and the Tsar instructed him to carry out conscientiously the reforms he had promised. But the officials who were to carry them out were Russians, and the greater reforms were withheld. There were further demonstrations and further shootings. A reactionary soldier, Count Ludus, was then made viceroy. His life was attempted. The Poles now openly demanded independence and a restoration of Lithuania, Arrests and banishment were useless. The whole educated nation seemed to be aflame. So on January 15th, the authorities decided to decimate the enthusiasts by an enforced recruiting for the army, and Poland entered upon another futile rebellion. Those who escaped to the police fled to the country, secured arms, and formed guerrilla bands. It was one of the most pathetic of rebellions. The insurgents had no artillery, no transport, or medical service. They moved about often led by priests as they were hunted, living on the sympathetic gentry and peasants, occasionally hanging or shooting a pro-Russian landowner. It was not war, and the Russian troops hanged or shot all they captured. The most curious feature of it was that a secret committee or council guided the insurrection, levied taxes, and issued decrees from the University of Warsaw itself without being detected by the police. Poles abroad fierily preached the wrongs of their countrymen, and the English, French, and Austrian governments formally requested the Tsar, 1863, 
to put an end to the anarchy. Two months later, they formulated for the Tsar what seemed to them the reasonable demands of the Poles. A general amnesty, parliamentary representation, reform of the law of recruiting, complete liberty of religion, admission of Poles to office, and so on. Alexander indignantly refused. He did not add, one wonders if he reflected, that it was precisely because the Sultan would not grant such rights to his Christian subjects that Russia had made war upon the Turk. Prussia supported and promised assistance to the Tsar. The last sparks of the rebellion were stamped out in May 1864, and the punishment began. The few traces that Nicholas had left of a Polish nationality were now destroyed. The Polish language was banned from schools and universities, and the chief rebels were executed. It was the nobles, the educated class, that Alexander chiefly blamed, and it was on that account that he granted the peasants of Poland the right to share the land. Alexander was less to blame in connection with another event, two years later, which moved Europe to express its indignation. The settlement of the Caucasic region was completed, and some hundreds of thousands of Mohammedan Circassians and Georgians migrated from the occupied territory and sought shelter in Turkey. The English government again made a protest in St. Petersburg, which was neatly countered by the reminder that the state of Ireland hardly justified England in posing as a moralist. The Circassians were, in fact, handsome ruffians with whose ways the English were imperfectly acquainted. They freely sold their daughters, the famous Circassian maids, to the harems of Constantinople, and they were the most expert cattle thieves and least industrious workers of Europe or Asia. They were largely settled by the Turks on the farms of the reluctant Bulgarians, and they willingly joined the Bashi Bazouks in cutting off Christian ears. The brutality that was used in the suppression of the Polish insurrection reacted upon the intellectuals of St. Petersburg, just as the insurrection itself reacted upon the more or less benevolent designs of the Tsar. But before we consider how the reign of Alexander II came to inaugurate the terror which would for the next 60 years brood over Russia, it is proper that we should briefly examine the remainder of his reforms. The emancipation of the serfs, though a measure of elementary justice that had been too long denied, must nevertheless command our admiration when we consider the stubborn opposition which the Tsar had to overcome. It was not followed by the political emancipation of the nation at large, but the Tsar created a popular institution which would, at a later date, prove a valuable instrument of reform. The Mir was re-established by the communal ownership of the land. The district council, the Zemsvo, was now established, 1864. Each government, or province, of Russia was already divided into districts, and there was to be in each of these a Zemsvo, or popular council, formed of deputies who were elected for a term of three years. They included representatives of the landowners, the artisans, and the peasants, and were to meet at least once a year with a permanent executive committee. A general Zemsvo for each province was also created. At the time, the Zemsvo had, insofar as it was obliged to act, few and simple functions, the care of roads, bridges, sanitation, etc., and the imperial taxes were so heavy that it could not raise sufficient money for other work. The imperial government, moreover, jealously watched and often interfered with the work of the popular council. Yet it was an important instalment of reform, and at a later date we shall find the Zemstvo playing a greater part than the Tsar intended in the enlightenment and emancipation of Russia. Already it had the option of building schools, and in many places it did so. 
there was a corresponding improvement in the administration of justice. The slovenly and corrupt traditional system was condemned, and an entire series of new tribunals framed on Western models was created. There was a court for each district and a court of appeal, from which a final appeal for revision might be made to the Senate. On the French model, the magistrates were to conduct the preliminary inquiry which had hitherto been left, with disastrous results, to the police, and public trial by jury was introduced. In the rural districts, justices of the peace, who were generally large landed proprietors, heard the petty cases which had earlier been made a matter of rough justice, or injustice, between the serf and his master. In such cases, an appeal might be made to a bench of justices if there was a question of a fine of more than 30 rubles, $15, or more than three days' imprisonment. Such appeals were rare, as it was found that the hardy peasant preferred a few strokes of the lash, as in the old days, to a loss of his money or his time. In the higher courts, as well as in the army, flogging was abolished. Here again, the demands of the liberals were, in theory, generously met, and in practice, they were largely evaded. Incompetence was inevitable at the beginning of so large a reform, and some degree of ill will and abuse of power had to be expected. These defects do not detract from the merit of the Tsar and his liberal ministers, but there was from the first a tendency on the part of the imperial government to regard cases as political and reserve them for the kind of treatment they had always received. As the radical agitation grew and the Tsar was driven into the arms of the reactionaries at the court, this interference naturally increased. Long before the end of Alexander's reign, the civil courts were habitually ignored in precisely those cases which needed the most impartial consideration, and men were detained and punished in thousands at the whim of brutal and irresponsible servants of the autocracy. These were the principal measures of reform granted by Alexander II in his period of benevolence. With the fiscal improvements, we are not much concerned but it may be noted that for a time a budget was published. Much was done in those early years, 1861 to 1866, for education. The restriction upon the number of students attending the universities was removed, and there was a remarkable eagerness to obtain higher education. Youths earned their living while they attended the classes, and some scholarships were founded. Girls were excluded from the universities, but we shall see presently how they broke through the barriers and joined the youths of Russia in their demand for enlightenment. A large number of secondary and elementary schools were established. In 1877, it was claimed that there were 25,000 schools. The press was offered the alternative of submitting its copy to a censorship or risking the attentions of the police. The very name of censor was hated after the experience under Nicholas I and for a time, periodicals and books poured out upon an eager public. The restriction upon travel, also, was removed, and men passed freely to the outer world, which terrified the Slavophiles, and came back with the language of Mazzini and other apostles upon their lips. Foreigners in Russia received civil rights for the first time. The restrictions upon the movements of the Jews were modified, though the pale was not abolished. The history of that stirring period has been so frequently written in the last 30 years that we no longer profess to find a mystery in the fact that this reforming Romanov fell by the hand of an assassin. Here it is necessary only to give a short summary of the development after 1860 which entirely changed the character of his reign. We must remember that from the first, Alexander II did not recognise the rights of man. 
In his best and most benevolent mood, he was concerned only with the duties of monarchs. The authority divinely entrusted to him was accompanied by a divine mandate to make his people virtuous and happy. Within the limits of a strict maintenance of the authority of the autocracy and of the clergy, he would do so. The more enlightened of his subjects might respectfully offer suggestions, though that was properly the function of the ministers he chose to guide him. But the correct attitude of the people was to await, in patience and respect, the measures of reform which the wisdom of his council sanctioned him in granting. This was a fundamental anachronism, and, however generous the intentions of the Tsar may have been, and however misguided and exaggerated some of the radicals, a conflict was as inevitable as the sunrise. Seeing that the policy of his early liberal ministers did not pacify the country, which became louder and bolder in its demands the more he gave it, Alexander fell back upon the worn maxims of autocracy and surrounded himself more and more with reactionaries. The wealth of the great landowners and the power of the clergy and monks were as much threatened by the new spirit as was the autocracy of the Tsars. In the recesses of the court there was, therefore, a complacent agreement upon the kind of theory which has at all times reconciled the consciences of good men with persecution. The extremists, it was said, were few in number and morbid or perverse in sentiment. They must not be suffered to abuse liberty to the detriment of the nation. Coercion was justified. To coercion, which meant, in practice, the most wanton brutality and violence on the part of baffled police, some replied with violence. In effect, war was declared. The crowd of young men who flocked to the University of St. Petersburg when the restrictions were removed were the nucleus of the radical movement which was gradually raised to revolutionary heat. The teaching of liberal professors who were reconciled to gradual and moderate reforms only prepared them for a more highly seasoned political diet, and there were powerful writers to purvey it. Herzen, who was in exile, sent his propaganda into the country much as Mazzini taught the youth of Italy. His very radical organ, the bell, was the delight of the young folk, who, in all ages, scorn the timidity of age, and are convinced that the immaturity of the youthful mind is amply compensated by its superior candour. Bakunin, who for a time joined Herzen in London and then settled in Switzerland, taught a gospel which gradually approached, and finally reached, anarchy. Tchaikovsky, who was also compelled to leave Russia, was the inspiration of a circle or discussion society at St. Petersburg, which had branches or affiliated societies in every town of Russia. Bilinsky and other radicals assisted the ferment of emotions and philosophies. Kropotkin and Stepiak were coming upon the scene. We have seen how the mind of Russian youth was prepared for these advanced gospels. The monotonous misery and poverty of the country in spite of every change of ruler. The corruption and brutality of officials. The harsh measures of Nicholas I. The disastrous issue of the Crimean War. The severity of the repression of the Poles the disappointing results of the emancipation of the serfs, and the increasing perception that Russia lagged behind every other country in Europe put a mass of inflammable material into the minds of the educated. As early as 1862, a student was caught spreading a pamphlet in which he advocated a bloody revolution against the dynasty and was exiled to Siberia. In the same year, a series of mysterious fires in St. Petersburg increased the agitation. Conservatives ascribed them to the violent radicals. 
The radicals retorted that they were due to agents of the reactionaries who wanted to provide a ground for stringent action. The left wing of the reformers moved rapidly further west, and its language increased in violence. The authorities raised the fees at the universities and endeavoured to suppress the numerous student societies, but the agitation continued. Many of the nobles themselves were in sympathy with the intellectual revolt. In 1862, several gatherings of nobles and gentry passed a demand for parliamentary institutions. At the other end of the movement, the conviction increased that no form of centralised government would remain honest and disinterested, and the philosophy of anarchy was framed. At first, it was moral rather than political, as it is in the minds of many anarchists today. The individual was to be relieved of the swathing bonds of all religious and moral and other traditions, and the theory was that he would then develop healthily. To this theory was first applied the name nihilism, which was afterwards, as anarchy became more and more political in complexion, extended to the whole revolutionary movement. Though socialism gained considerably on anarchy as time went on. It was the period of Karl Marx and the early German socialists, and the imposing structure of Marx's arguments won large numbers of adherents. One of the most disturbing features in the minds of conservatives was the way in which young women adopted the advanced creed. The attempts of Peter the Great to break down the barriers which confined the life of women had almost ceased at his death. In the world of wealth, as Tolstoy's novels show, women kept the liberty of the reigns of Elizabeth and Catherine. The new austerity of the court was not accompanied by any general asceticism amongst the aristocracy. The philosophy of anarchy provided a principle for what had hitherto been an inconsistent defiance of religious traditions which were nominally respected. But the mass of Russian women and girls, above the level of the peasantry, had hitherto been unaffected by these liberties of the aristocracy. Now the cry of the emancipation of woman penetrated remote country houses, and many a girl broke loose from the control of a tearful mother or an infuriated father, and sought the centre of enlightenment in the city. The authorities refused to allow unmarried women to attend the higher schools. They retorted, as Roman women had done nearly 2,000 years before, by entering into fictitious marriages. Gradually, they won the right to attend certain lectures at the university, and many of them were found in the student circles where the reconstruction of the universe was heatedly discussed. The next development was that the intellectuals decided to educate the workers. An officer of the army resigned his commission and turned weaver. Sofia Perovskaya and other daughters of wealthy parents got into touch with the working and domestic women. The police of the third section the secret police created by Nicholas, grew in numbers and dogged the steps of these fiery young apostles. In 1866, a man named Karakosov, who had formed a society to promote the welfare of the people, attempted to shoot the Tsar. An isolated fanatic, the Tsar was told, and at that time, there was certainly no real organisation of assassination. But the pressure of the police and the daily risk of arrest drove the agitation underground and to their new quarters the spies and informers and police followed them. There was now, plainly, no question of persuading Alexander II to complete his scheme of reform. There was increasing question of making war upon him and the autocracy. It was the Russian tradition. When a Tsar was obnoxious, you removed him. But to do so in the name of justice, not in the name of a covetous group of courtiers, was revolution of the worst order. By this time, the early 70s, the Tsar saw that he had not merely to deal with a few unbalanced individuals. The jails were full of political prisoners. 
All the well-known leaders were in jail or exile, yet the work proceeded amazingly. In 1874, there were 1,500 arrests. The new courts were not called upon to decide the guilt of the prisoners. They were knouted or thrust into prison or sent to Siberia. Large numbers died in the overcrowded jails. Some went insane or committed suicide. When the experiment of a public trial was at last made, in 1877, people were amazed at the calm courage and high idealism of the young criminals. In 1878, nearly 200 of them were tried. Many received terms of imprisonment or penal servitude of from 10 to 20 years. The rebels were now at war with the brutal ministers of the autocracy, and they began to use the same weapons. A young girl from the country came to St. Petersburg and shot the head of the police. And, amid great enthusiasm, she was acquitted by a jury. Another head of the police was in the same year, 1878, stabbed at Odessa. Spies were shot. Groups of young men who were surprised in secret counsel by the police produced revolvers and fought. The governor of Kharkov, who treated political prisoners with great brutality, was assassinated. Another attempt was made to shoot the Tsar, 1879. In the meantime, it will be remembered, the Russo-Turkish War had occurred, and it had the customary effect of increasing the people's burden and the discontent. The Slavophile party naturally gave birth to a pan-Slav party, and the traditional Russian ambition to spread over the Balkans was revived. The Turks continued to treat their Balkan subjects with great brutality, and in 1874, Bosnia and Herzegovina broke into revolt, while Serbia and Montenegro, which were semi-independent, joined with their compatriots in the war. The pan-Slavs now pressed for war, and there were those in the Tsar's circle, such as his brother, the Grand Duke Nicholas, who warmly supported the agitation. The finance minister, on the other hand, who had carefully nursed the treasury into something like prosperity, strongly opposed the adventure. The Tsar wavered between his hopes of getting the ignominious Treaty of 1856 set aside and his love of peace and dread of the costly chances of war. There is no doubt that Bismarck helped to urge him to war. Alexander was pro-German and had, in 1870, secured the neutrality of Austria while Prussia attacked France. It is true that when the Germans mediated a fresh attack upon the French in 1875, the Tsar interfered on behalf of France and greatly angered Bismarck. That statesman, however, retained influence at St. Petersburg, and on the Frederician tradition of encouraging rivals to wear each other out, he urged Russia to attack Turkey. In 1877, April, Russia entered the war, and its progress was so rapid that in the following March it compelled Turkey to sign the humiliating Treaty of San Stefano. Russia took from it very little territory directly, but, besides securing the recognition of the complete independence of Serbia and Romania, it created a large principality of Bulgaria in which it hoped to have a predominant interest. England was, unfortunately, still in its mood of favouring the Turk through jealousy of Russia, and Austria was less openly hostile. A desultory war continued, and Bismarck astutely offered the services of Germany as mediator, with the intention of curtailing its gains. By the Treaty of Berlin, July 13, 1878, the San Stefano Treaty was torn up, and Bulgaria was cut down by half. Once more, a costly war had, in the eyes of the people, done little for Russia, and there was the customary and not unjust cry that the course of the war had revealed a great deal of official corruption. The tragedy of the reign of Alexander ran on to its ghastly finale. In 1878, 
It was decreed that in future, political prisoners should be tried by courts martial, and in the following year, the Tsar appointed governors-general of St. Petersburg, Kharkov, and Odessa, and gave additional and formidable powers to the governors of Moscow, Warsaw, and Kiev. The system of repression was to be drastically pursued. The revolutionaries retorted by attempting to blow up the train in which Alexander returned from her visit to the Crimea. Three mines were laid. Near Moscow, Sofia Petrovskaya and a few associates had worked for two months digging a tunnel to the line from a house they had taken. The preparations were in this case perfect, but the Tsar escaped. The police had arranged three trains, and as the Tsar changed train on approaching Moscow, leaving the middle for the first train, he was allowed to pass unharmed, and it was the second train that was blown to pieces. Sofia Petrovskaya and her associates escaped and returned to their plotting. The heads of the revolutionary movement had decreed the death of Alexander II. For the next 15 months, there was a thrilling war between the revolutionaries and the third section. Time and again, the Tsar's advisers declared that only a few dozen rebels were left, and the country was substantially loyal. But, although hundreds were arrested annually, though bribes and spies and all the ignominious machinery of the police were brought into play, the Red Terror held the field against the White Terror. In February 1880, not only the Tsar, but all the imperial family had a narrow escape. A revolutionary named Halturin entered the service of the Winter Palace as waiter. He discovered that the waiter's quarters were, with an intervening floor occupied by troops, directly underneath the dining room, and he proposed to fire a mine there. Day by day, he smuggled into the palace small quantities of dynamite and stored them with his belongings. The police discovered a plan on which the imperial dining room was marked with a cross, and they searched the floors beneath it. They did not find the explosive, but from that day a stricter watch was kept, and no more dynamite could be introduced. Halturin believed that he had enough, and on February 17th he fired the mine at a time when the imperial family ought to be assembled for a festive dinner. But the Tsar was late for dinner, and again he escaped unhurt. The closing scene is one of dramatic interest. It was decided to lay a mine under a street through which the Tsar had frequently to pass near the palace, and at the same time stationed men with special bombs to throw at the carriage in case the mine failed. The conspirators hired a shop, and while some of them conducted a brisk and honest trade in eggs and butter, others tunnelled beneath the street. The soil was removed in the empty boxes, and though the police several times visited the shop, they detected nothing beyond a popular grocery business. The tunnel was complete and the mine ready, about the middle of March 1881. The dramatic feature is that meantime, Alexander II was being induced to consider proposals of reform. He had, after the outrage at the palace, removed the Governor-General of St. Petersburg and entrusted the repression of anarchy to a Supreme Commanding Commission. The leading spirit of this was General Loris Melikov, who had had some success as Governor-General of Kharkov. Melikov's method was to isolate the terrorists by grinding reforms which would conciliate the general body of malcontents. He pressed this method upon the Tsar. As Alexander, distracted and weary, perhaps a little anxious about his life, decided to try it. The prisons and the settlements of Siberia were explored, and large numbers were restored to their homes. About 2,000 students were permitted to return to the universities and the scholarships were restored. Melikov then proposed a scheme of popular representation which, though it did not exactly give Russia a constitution, might have conciliated many. The reactionary ministers and courtiers now doubled their efforts to restrain the Tsar, 
but he accepted Melikoff's draft and kept it several days for revision. He probably wavered and postponed the fatal decision, and it was during that week of delay that the conspirators completed their preparations. On March 16th, Alexander read the draft to his ministers and approved it. His relief at having reached a definite policy was great, and in happier mood he drove out to review his troops. As he returned to the palace, a young woman in the street waved her handkerchief. She was the redoubtable Sofia Berovskaya, and was giving the signal. A bomb was thrown, and the carriage was wrapped in a cloud of smoke, while Cossacks writhed on the ground. But, out of the smoke and litter, the Tsar again emerged unhurt. Against the advice of his officers, he lingered to say a word to the wounded, and it is said that he congratulated himself on his escape. It is too early to congratulate yourself, said a young man, who, through some oversight, had been permitted to approach. He flung his bomb, and the Tsar fell, fearfully and mortally wounded. He died at the palace two hours later. They who draw the sword shall perish by the sword, the rebels grimly commented. The doctrine of the assassination of tyrants, of men who stifled constitutional demands by the shedding of blood, was then held by even moderate radicals in many lands. There were others who pointed out that Alexander II, who had inherited an empty purse, left many millions of rubles to be divided amongst his family. End of section 17 Recording by A.J. Binney